This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. Yeah, I think Jamie Dimon may be trying to kind of warn folks about what you saw back in the final few months of 2018 might just be what you're going to get in the future. Jamie Dimon of J.P. Morgan, of course, we're talking about. He put out his annual and rather lengthy letter to shareholders. We got a read of that early this morning. I just put it out on Twitter at Carol Masser. It is among our most read stories on the Bloomberg. So here with more, Michelle Davis, Bloomberg News finance reporter in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio in New York, who is upright and early read it, looked over it, wrote a story. So wrote two stories. <laughs> wrote two stories. So the big takeaway, or we seem to keep pulling out about how the market volatility that we saw in the final months of 2018 might be, and these are his words, might be a harbinger of things to come. Right. So it's a it's a bit of a shift from what we are used to hearing from Diamond. You know, in his last annual letter, it was all about how bullish he was on the economy, how perhaps this recovery was really, you know, accelerating and, and gaining strength. And and in this one, he, he really just touches on the idea that the economy might not actually be accelerating, you know, growth might not be accelerating and, and there could be some scary times ahead. Jason's like a 180 like the Fed. It really is amazing. Really? I mean, this letter has become, I mean, as Michelle knows better than, than we do, Carol, I mean, it really has been, you know, almost like Warren Buffett-esque in mm-hmm. terms of people, you know, sort of picking through it and trying to understand, in part just because, obviously because of what Jamie Dimon's firm does, but also because of the corridors of power uh, that that he's walking. What does this tell us, uh, or maybe synthesize this, if you can, uh, Michelle, with the rest of what you guys are hearing on the on the Wall Street team about big banks and their their view of the world? Well, you know, what I found most interesting about this letter is that he really doubled down on this call to fellow CEOs to, yes. to be, you know, their own, not statesmen, but, you know, to be the driving force for change in this, you know, increasingly pol- politically divided world. Uh, it, he has always been, very, you know, very public about his views on policy, but this is the first time I had heard him Wasn't say... Wasn't that like Steve Schwartzman? Did Steve Schwartzman do the same thing in, in a note to some of their investments? Jason, I'm trying to think who it was who did something very similar, I want to say. I think it was Larry Fink. Was it Larry Fink? Forgive Larry me. Fink, yeah. Okay, yeah. yeah. And I feel like we're, we're hearing these guys who oversee a lot of money flowing around our economy and our world, really, kind of saying that you need to think about these things, like your impact right. socially, globally, environment, all those things. Yeah, I mean, there's an interest. One of my favorite quotes from the from the letter was he talked about how you know in the past boards and advisors would tell company CEOs to keep their heads down and, and stay out of the line of fire, and he says now the opposite is true. If companies and CEOs don't get involved in public policy issues, you know, making progress on all these problems that that he's identified will be difficult. Well, and it's interesting to hear him say this too, because and, and again, Michelle, you know this better than us. He he has uh, suffered uh, some slings and arrows for taking on the president, in President Trump. That is, um, he's had a, a sort of off, on again, off again relationship to to some extent. 
uh, you know, been called out by by the president and vice versa. I mean, at one point, he rather unwisely said, you know, he felt like he could beat him in an election. Um, so th- this is not for the faint of heart, you know, sort of putting your head up and, and, and uh, making your opinion known. Exactly. And, and one has to wonder, you know, what, why he is, right. you know, making these statements at you, when you read it, you know, a lot of it has to do more with the broader economy in the world than with, you know, his thoughts on JP Morgan. Don't get me wrong. He does talk about how they run the business, but, but most of the new things were, uh, you know, about broader things. Well, and it's interesting too. Um, Daniel Pinto, who's JP Morgan's co-president and head of its investment bank, said in his own letter, right? He put out something on Thursday. You write this in your story about he too talked about recent volatility could be pinned on investors speculating that a downturn was coming sooner than previously expected. I mean, we are at a really funny time. And when someone like Jamie Morgan, uh, Jamie Morgan, <laughs> he'd like to be Jamie Morgan, Jamie Diamond of JP Morgan uh, comes out and say, says this, we sit up and take notice because there's a lot of conflicting signals, whether you're looking at the Fed, whether you look at what, you know, the quick inversion in the yield curve, what we're hearing in terms of corporate earnings projections. Like there's a lot of, I think, conflicting things going on. And so we're trying to grasp, especially from someone like Jamie, who really has a big picture view. And I I guess one just important thing is that, you know, he he makes it clear that they're not necessarily expecting a recession. He just wants to be sure the, the firm is ready and prepared for the prospect of one, you know, to be the port in the storm like they were the last time all this happened. Well, and also notable, uh, and Michelle, you pointed this out uh, in your notes that, you know, he talks about cloud computing. Obviously, that's of great interest here uh, in Silicon Valley, where I'm I'm sitting, that you do have big tech, big finance companies essentially embracing big tech in a much, much more uh, meaningful way and becoming big voices on on those issues, which, again, other CEOs will take note of. Totally. Yeah. Uh, he And he actually, you know, admitted that he thinks he was initially too skeptical of, of yeah. cloud computing. Yeah. Right. Right. Well, at least he's evolved, right? He can change his opinion, which I kind of like that. Um, Michelle, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Michelle Davis, finance reporter at Bloomberg News. Check her out on Twitter. She's joining us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. And as I mentioned, Jason, I put out um, Jamie Dimon's yeah. letter. All, I forget how many pages. How many pages? Well, and, 51. And Michelle's... And Michelle's story is, uh, mm-hmm. not surprisingly, one of the most read on the Bloomberg today following, uh, and maybe this isn't an accident, following a story about uh, Nomura and yeah. their job cuts, uh, CEO unveiling a plan there to save $1 billion. So when you synthesize all this and you start to think about, mm-hmm. okay, volatility is a harbinger of things to come, other you know big bank CEOs starting to figure out how they can save money, you do start to – there's some pattern recognition here, I think. Well, I agree. And I feel like in the last week or two, we've seen a lot of moves within the financial sector in terms of whether it's private equity, whether it's the banks, people hiring, people letting folks go, um, kind of thinking about what's, gonna, what's going to come in and how the financial sector and industry is really changing because of a bunch of different factors. Taking care of business. So the last read on small business found that optimism among small companies in the U.S. improved in February, snapping a five-month losing streak that was the longest in two decades. So, Jason, optimism coming from some brighter views of future conditions there. We'll get another reading in about a week. But Capital One is also uh, checking out the small business community. They got their own reading. And here to tell us about it is Jen Flynn. She's Capital One's head of small business. She joins us on this Thursday on the phone from McLean, Virginia. Jen, great to have you here. Uh, 
I love, love, love talking about the small business community because I do feel like, you know, I can't say it enough. It's the backbone of the U.S. economy. and it That's tells, a lot of love, Carol. <laughs> it is a lot of love. But I think it gives us a really good idea of how things are going. Tell me, remind us of the metrics, what you look into and what you guys found out. Sure. Thanks for having me, Carol. We at Capital One also love this sector. Um, We believe it's such an important part of the economy. Um, We survey 500 small businesses, and, you know, this is our opportunity to pulse small business owners about things that are important to them, Um, what's top of mind, better understand their challenges, and get a feel for their optimism. And so what jumped out at you uh, this time around, especially as it relates to optimism? You know, Carol sort of teed you up for that uh, nicely in terms of the optimism that I, I guess we've been seeing from small businesses of late. Absolutely. And, you know, as Carol mentioned, you know, we've been doing the survey for 10 years and we saw a nice spike in optimism last fall. Uh, with our survey. We did see that dip a bit this time. Um, I would say small business owners remain cautiously optimistic. Mm. There's still more than half that cite good or excellent business conditions, but small business owners are worried about the recession Mm. or the stock market volatility, right? They see the same volatility in the market that we do. And they're keeping a close eye on things. So does that mean, Jen, they're retrenching in terms of hiring, investing, expansion, all that good stuff? And that's where the cautious optimism comes in. They're still investing. Mm -hmm. uh, They're still planning to hire. And they're still taking steps to grow their business. And so, Jen, when they do go out to hire, are they finding people? Because, you know, we've been talking about this tight labor market for a couple of years now, it feels like. Absolutely. Look, it remains a competitive labor market. You know, small businesses are competing for the same talent as large companies. I'd say they're doing a good job offering competitive salaries, and they're promoting things like creative office perks and flexible work arrangements. You know, we're finding uh, small business owners are getting creative in ways to attract and retain that talent. For example, we're seeing our customers reinvest the cash they earn on their Spark credit card or Spark savings back into their employees in forms of health insurance and bonuses and other types of employee benefits that are becoming real differentiators. So if you had to, based on, because like you said, you've been doing this, uh, Jen, for a while. You said 10 years, right? So I'm just trying to think. So we're just coming off the recession, right? Yes. Okay. So based on kind of that 10-year pack of data, how would you, I mean, is the glass half full for a small business? Is it half empty? I would say it's half full. Um, You know, we know this population really well. And, you know, we continue to be struck every year in every survey by their resilience. And we see that in the data here, too. Um, They, this group is used to change. And, um, you know, that optimism is is coming through in, in, in this survey. So, Jen, we're on the verge of tax day, and obviously taxes have been front of mind really for the last year, year and a half, with the the tax bill that went through uh, last year in 2018. How is that going to manifest itself for small businesses? Because I feel like we get a very mixed picture when it comes to consumers on that front. Oh, absolutely. And you get a mixed picture with small businesses as well. Um, About half of the respondents say tax reform was good for their business and they're expecting to pay less. Um, there's also the other half that expects to pay either the same or more. So wow. I think it's still Did that surprise that surprises me a little bit. That's yeah, it surprised it surprised us as well. 
All right. Wow. It's just something to think to, you know, Jen, because I, I, you know, we keep, Jason and I keep repeating over and over again, and we were just coming off of our discussion about Jamie Dimon's uh, annual letter to shareholders. And just, we're in this funny little time where I think we're all grasping on information to try and get a much clearer picture of, of where we go from here. Absolutely. And you, you see that come through in the data. Um, you see that come through when we talk to our customers. And yet there's still that underlying resilience of we're going to move forward. We're going to invest in our businesses. Mm. We're going to continue to hire and chase our dreams. All and, right. you know, we at Capital One are here to support those businesses along the way. Well, great to check in with you. Uh, Jen Flynn, head of small business at uh, Capital One, joining us on the phone from McLean, Virginia. Interesting, right? Yeah. So, whose who, whose sentiment is going to win? I, guess, I, I don't, is, is part of it. And I was fascinated and by sentiment's that. Sentiment's a great 50, word 50 to use, right? Yeah. Yeah. And look, if you're a small business, you're having to make decisions on the fly. You mm-hmm. don't have a lot of generally a lot of wiggle room uh, or, or a lot of cushion. So we'll see. Right. And sentiment can certainly and does impact activity, actual actions. So, uh, as I promised you, we're going to have a a ton of our most read stories on the Bloomberg today. And this next one is uh, on that list. Shares of Tesla tanking thanks to a delivery drop. Let's get uh, opposing views on Tesla. Ross Gerber, very familiar to our Bloomberg audience, president and CEO at Gerber Kawasaki Wealth and Investment. He owns approximately 10 million shares of Tesla, owns a Model 3. Ross with us from Santa Monica, California. Also familiar to our audience, uh, David Kula. He's CEO and chief investment strategist at Mainstay Capital Management. They've got $2.5 billion in assets under management. He joins us from Michigan. David, I want to start with you. You believe we are clearly past peak Tesla. How come? Well, we've had a, a very disappointing number here on deliveries for first quarter. Uh, certainly, if we look at the overall number, uh, we had 90,000, about uh, almost 91,000 vehicles delivered last quarter. We're down to 63,000 this quarter, 31% decline. And uh, that's before the wave of competition coming uh, domestically and globally uh, is we're just we're just seeing the 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 initial part of that uh, coming for Tesla. So um, that's why we think uh, we've seen peak Tesla and it's behind us. Ross, you clearly uh, maybe don't agree that we've seen uh, peak Tesla. You're long uh, this about ten million dollars worth of, of shares, I believe. So what's right. the case going forward? Yeah, that that was incorrect. Yeah, I own ten million Sorry. dollars worth of shares. Did I freak yeah, you okay. out? Did I freak you? I know Jason's like, I well, think he I said ten million. Money today, that's sure. <laughs> Sorry, uh, I read too no, fast. Okay. Uh, ten million dollars uh, worth. Say, saying it's peak Tesla is kind of like saying like this is peak society. You know what I mean? Like this is the beginning of Tesla, and this is what Tesla is struggling with is rolling out their product internationally and and all the you know byproducts of releasing such a compelling car and and that's why we saw kind of a drop in model s uh sales was because the performance model three is a very compelling alternative to a model s and and i think they saw a little bit of cannibalization because of that but i don't think that that's a big problem for tesla longer term because it's not their goal to be a high-end car maker it's their goal to mass-produce EV cars. So, you know, this is the transition they're making from sort of a high-end car maker to a mass-production, global-scale car company here. So it's a very exciting time for Tesla, and as well a challenging time as they continue to, I guess, deal with, 
you know, disrupting an industry. But the only competition that's coming for Tesla uh, is really from China. And when you look at the rest of the car companies, you know, they're in desperation mode now, just trying to, you know, wiggle their way into some some strategy to counter Tesla. So we're seeing that, you know, in Germany in, in particular, you know, um, and the rest mm-hmm. of the world is going green. So Tesla's in the right spot. Well, so David, come on in on so, that. Respond to Ross. Well, if, if that's, if that's the case, Ross, that they are uh, driving towards that car for mass appeal for the mass audience, mass customer, then they need to be able to make a car profitably at thirty-five thousand. They be, need to be able to produce and sell a car below forty-four thousand, and they've struggled right. to get there. Uh, the, the the car makers that are going to eat their lunch in that regard are the Chinese automakers. They're coming online, and they're coming online in a big way. By 2020, they'll have enough capacity in China alone to fulfill all the EV demand globally and more. They have so many EV automakers in China that are coming online that the Chinese government last year had to curtail, actually restricted the licenses of Chinese startups allowed to manufacture EV vehicles. That's how many uh, automakers are getting into the EV market. It's not about uh, traditional OEM automakers that are wondering about a strategy and how do they get into this market. The, the, the market in 2019, there's 2.6 million EVs expected to be bought in 2019. Uh, it goes up from there. We're on an S-curve of EV demand. There is going to be an EV glut on the market in 2020. Yeah, see, I, I agree with a lot of what you're saying in that China is definitely the biggest competitor to Tesla. I, I completely agree with that. But I don't think their ability to scale is as good as they claim. And I think a lot of the car companies and the reason they're cutting back was a lot of it was just bad investment for them. And so, you know, China, especially Volvo and Geely and BYD, I think are the other leaders in this industry. Um, but Tesla has a brand value in China that's unbelievable. I mean, it's better than the iPhone. Um, it, the Chinese people love Tesla. It's it's about being an American brand and what it stands for. So I, I think EV demand and supply will increase dramatically, but I think demand's going to increase much, much quicker than supply. And, and Tesla's going to be the top of the charts there, as well as other successful companies. So, and I'll start with you, David, how much do you worry about the fact that I'm sitting here in front of my Bloomberg terminal and Elon Musk is in front of the SEC, Tesla's in front of the SEC over his Twitter habits? I mean, that that doesn't feel normal for for a CEO. How much does that play into the thesis here? Well, it plays in a great deal. You know, we're we're focusing a lot on, on Q1 deliveries uh, and looking down the road at what the potential is globally for Tesla and talking a lot about the brand. And, and I agree with Ross Gerber. Uh, it is a strong brand, and a lot of that brand is because of Elon Musk. And if Elon Musk were gone tomorrow or gone at some point, uh, a lot of that brand ec- equity is in, in Elon. And, you know, in, in Elon, we trust. I think he has some <laughs> devout followers. And there's been some missteps that have, have, have tarnished Elon and tarnished the brand. And there's a real risk, you know, uh, investigations by the SEC, by the DOJ, uh, by uh, now, you know, we, we have the, the ongoing concerns about uh, the tweets on 
uh, production levels and and restrictions uh, for him as a CEO. He continues to find ways to get in trouble. He's not your typical CEO. Some of the followers like that, uh, but some of the regulators and others, uh, you know, whether it's the the um, NASA with SpaceX and others, it, they they find it problematic. So. You know, that's a, that's a double-edged sword. Well, and just one last question to you, Ross, because let's follow up on that. I mean, if there isn't an Elon Musk as CEO of Tesla, you know, does this be a problem? Or Dana Hull is following what's going on uh, with Mr. Musk down in downtown New York. And he says, one of the, she says, one of the big questions has always been, could the SEC seek or Judge Nathan rule that Musk should not be CEO? So far, it doesn't seem to be that way. Just got about 30 seconds left here. I mean... Yeah, that that's not going to happen. The SEC's job is not to take out CEOs over a tweet. I think what people don't understand, if you look at all the pictures, Elon's smiling on his way into court. Because while the conservative people of the world look at this as, oh, he did a bad tweet and, oh, he's always in trouble, people hate the government. You know, they're... <laughs> They love that Elon's standing up to the government. He's gotten a million new followers since this all went down. Controversy is part of Elon Musk and the right. brand, and it's made him a, a folk hero. He has almost as many fans Got as it. the Kardashians. So all right. it's, hmm. it's part of the strategy. Keep that Got in it. mind. Hey, Ross, we got to run. David, we got to run. Ross Gerber over at Gerber Kawasaki. David Kudlov, Mainstay Capital Management, just uh, walking through on Tesla. This is Bloomberg. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I wanna drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. And it is time for that drive to the close here on a Thursday. Joining us, Yana Barton, Equity Portfolio Manager at Eaton Vance. Joining us on the phone from Boston. Yana, great to be with you. A Florida Gator, uh, I understand. So nothing wrong with that. Thanks for having me. (laughs) There you go. Um, So where are we uh, in this cycle? Because we get, you know, uh, some mixed signals here. You know, we've been talking about small businesses. We're hearing from Jamie Dimon. As you're investing into this, how much uncertainty are you encountering? Um, I think today's action and even the year-to-day action showcases that there's plenty of uncertainty. And I think in terms of the cycle, um, we're a later. Um, this is definitely a economic recovery that has lasted over 130-plus months. But if you look at the strength of the recovery, it's not as the strongest, nor has the bull market been um, the strongest. It certainly has been the longest-running uh, one. So there's plenty of uncertainty, but I think uh, when folks are looking around for opportunities um, longer term, the key, um, I think, uh, input to that is that global growth remains uh, the number one scarcity, you know, and um, if you know that growth is difficult to come by, I think it puts a premium to those companies and those investment opportunities that have growth rates that are in excess of the market and in excess of their industry. So uh, growth is the name of the game, and it's less about style definition and more about stock opportunities. So tell us about um, the Eaton 
Focus Growth Opportunities Fund, and it is beating uh, just about um, all of its peers, about three quarters of its peers to be exact over the past five years, returning on average more than 13% annually. You're involved in picking names for that fund. So talk to us because it reads like a who's who of uh, corporate America. (laughs) Uh, It definitely does. And thank you so much for the opportunity to talk about the Focus Growth Opportunities Fund. You know, I am lucky enough to be representing the fund in front of you. I actually co-manage it with my partner, Lupi Antidosi, and we have a team of about uh, eight um, analysts that are superstars. And the way I would describe it is it's a strategy that is really focused on finding um, opportunities that we will be talking about tomorrow. So it's the slogan is invest in tomorrow today, and we have about uh, 25 to uh, about 40 positions. Currently, we have 35, and we're seeking growth. The greatest thing about growth is that it doesn't come from just one or two sectors that traditionally have been defined as growth. We buy all types of growth companies, whether they're secular in nature, stable, or cyclical in nature. And you're uh, correct, Carol, to note that majority of the portfolio does lean secular growth because those are investable opportunities that we can uh, write out irrespective of the backdrop, whether we're talking macro, monetary policy, whatever it is, because those are the companies that have the TAM that's going their way. They're the disruptors or enablers. And that's why propensity of the portfolio is really to be in that sort of, um, you know, a trifecta of uh, opportunities, which is within consumer health care and information so, technology. So let me just throw because our audience loves specifics and they love names. So at the top of the pack, you've got Amazon, you've got Alphabet, you've got Visa, you've got Charles Schwab. You've got Walt Disney, Palo Alto Networks, uh, United Health, Salesforce, and Coca-Cola, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so um, I can go on and on about every single one of those companies, but starting from the top and kind of walking my way down, I think, you know, um, when you think about big picture and you think about the uh, e-commerce opportunity, we're talking about a retail pie of about $25 trillion, and e-commerce continues to be less than 10% of that. And then you think about cloud computing and where we are in that, and AWS having the opportunity to really uh, fulfill that void. One, One interesting question that I've been getting this week is obviously about Lyft and um, the IPO that's um, coming up, which is Pinterest. And what many are not talking about is if you actually read the IPO material, um, you find one common um, sort of theme, and that is AWS is the infrastructure that is enabling these logistic and these sort of new companies to come to the market. So they're a clear winner in a lot of different ways. Um, You talked about software companies, Mm -hmm. which again benefit from the cloud computing. Uh, transformation. Uh, you talked about a couple of other ones within the healthcare space. These are big. We, we play big themes, uh, but we're opportunistic as well and tactical. Um, I think one timely opportunity that might not be um, highlighted in the top 10 is within the healthcare space outside of the service names, but actually within biotech. The sector is trading at a discount uh, to the market, so there's a sentiment, obviously, downdraft there, but um, you know, you think about big picture theme and an unmet medical need of rare diseases or big um, problems we haven't solved for. Uh, there are something like 7,000 rare diseases, and majority of them are genetic in nature, and uh, almost 95% of them have no therapies, no known therapies. So these companies within the biotech space are going to be the solution, and, and it's so exciting to be in front of these 
incredible management teams and incredible uh, businesses, and you know that they're solving big problems that will make this world a better place. So um, it's across the board, and we get excited because we truly yeah. believe in, in, in what these companies are doing and how they're disrupting um, the status quo. And so, Yana, tell us a little bit about Disney at, at this moment, especially given, you know, you're obviously very bullish on, on Amazon, and Amazon is so much more than a media company. And yet, you know, you've got Disney and Amazon and Netflix all sort of vying for this next wave of streaming or, or dominance uh, in the streaming world as we start to uh, absorb and consume content in a different way. It, what makes you bullish on Disney? Well, I think it's um, you know it's a transition uh, story and one that is really seeking out this DTC direct to consumer platform. Um, and you know you think about the brand, you think about the moat this company has in different um, uh, different uh, different business mixes that it brings to the forefront within the consumer, the consumer you know parks and media entertainment company. And here's a uh, phenomenal franchise that is selling at a discount to the market that has the potential uh, to participate and what you talked about, uh, Jason, which is the long-term uh, transition of media um, and um, content that you own. So they are the conduit. They control their own content, uh, phenomenal management team, and they're sort of transitioning um, into these newer platforms, uh, enabling themselves to win over the long term. So, you know, that's, that's a name that has been a long-term holding for the portfolio and one mm -hmm. that we think there's value to um, just given where we are in the marketplace today. All right, going to leave it on that note. Yana, thank you so much. Yana Barton, uh, Equity Portfolio Manager over at Eaton Vance, co-manager of the Eaton Vance Focus Growth Opportunities Fund. Uh, ticker is EIFGX. And as I mentioned, uh, just about in the 75th percentile over the past five years. So beating the majority of funds uh, in terms of its peers uh, in that category. Yeah, 80, uh, 84th percentile over a year and 74th, as you said, both mm -hmm. five-year and, uh, and year-to-date. And a really interesting, as you pointed out. I love the list of those names, like a really interesting mix of, uh, of stocks there and, mm -hmm. and all obviously with a, a slightly different story, but it's, it's always interesting to see what, what the mix is for a very successful fund like that. All right. You are listening to Bloomberg Radio. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern only on Bloomberg Radio.